Hello, and welcome to A Soldier, A Sailor and A Scientist, the latest podcast series from the Wavelry. In this series, Peter Roberts and I travel to the Defence, Science and Technology Lab. In this episode, we talk to Dr Martin Jones about human performance. Don't forget to head to wavelroom.com to check out the rest of our content and to listen to our other podcasts. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the episode. Martin Jones. Hello. How did you find yourself working in DSTL? Well, it's a long story. So I started my career as a sport and exercise psychologist, and I worked in universities for a long time. And during that time, I had a couple of students who'd come in from the defense world. So I had a few master's students who, who did a master's degree um, with me in sports psychology. And I started to get exposed to, to defense and security and the kind of demands that, that are placed on, on the people and how the human performance and, and the psychology side of things could help those people. So over time, I just got more and more interested in this area and a job came up at DSTL and I put my name in and here I am four years later and you know still enjoying the job and looking forward to, to what the future holds. So human performance? Yes. What is that? Ah, good question. So human performance, I mean, fundamentally, fighting power is, is built on human capability. The human sits within many different systems and different platforms. There's a, there's a person typically holding onto a piece of equipment or, or directing a piece of equipment or something like that. So we've got to make sure that those people are performing, they're optimized. So we look at how well they are performing physically. And we also think about how they're performing psychologically. And can we use the the science and the technology that we have available to us to to provide that advantage to those people and to, to make sure that they can do their jobs as best as they can in sometimes quite difficult situations? Sure we do this for years, right? I mean, if you if you go back to ancient Greece, you know, the singing of the of the of the chants of the hymns before they did it was a way of, you know, getting them psychologically in the mood for it. And then you know, it, navies had tots of rum. You know, there was Dutch courage in, you know, in, in Napoleonic armies. And then you had, you know, tobacco, you know, was, was as a stimulant was kept going, you know. So we've been doing this. The militaries are sort of, they've got a really long history, probably the longest history of trying to keep their warriors at, at the top. So so beyond like stims or, you know, or, or drugs, where is the future looking in, in this? And I take it that's what you're looking at here. We, we look at lots of different areas of human performance. So within DSTL, our experts, are, we look at different components of performance. So we might look at the physiological side of things. You mentioned things like stimulants um, so, or like the nutritional side or the pharmacological aids that can optimize performance. So we have experts that, that look at those, those areas to see how we can get the most out of people through what we put into our bodies. We also look at some of the the modern technologies and the advancements to 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 take people up to them their potential maybe without what they put in the body so how do you train people most efficiently and most effectively and um, what are the the types of training techniques in terms of you know the 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 strength and conditioning and uh, how do we maximize people's aerobic endurance whilst carrying load how do we help people operate at altitude how do we use the science and technology that's available to us and the understanding that's developed over the past sort of 10, 15 years. So we can take some of that leading technology and lean science and apply it to, to help people get to where they need to be at the right time, best prepared and, and make sure that we're mitigating against a lot of those environmental stressors that have been you know, soldiers and, and sailors and, and airmen and airwomen have been putting themselves into these positions for years, but now we can potentially make their performance better when maybe it's the environment that's constraining their ability to do their job. Is that one of the, the greatest restrictions there? Because you think, you know, armies, you know, regularly, all militaries sit at peace, you know, for 99% of their time. And then for 1% of their time, you know, it's hell for leather, it's action. That, that, and that's the moment at which you have to be at the peak of your performance. That, that is that that's got to be a different set from like training for an athlete right who an athlete you can train for a predicted date a predicted event a predicted time at the right altitude you know, so all those fixed things whereas military personnel generally 
you don't know where they're going to deploy. You don't know what moment it's going to kick off. And you don't necessarily know the scenario. That's got to be a very different, I mean, it's almost like a different set of assumptions of, of building blocks than, than everything else that is looking at human performance, which I'm guessing is in industry and in the commercial set is all based around sport. Is that right? There's a lot, a lot of the research does come from sport. Yeah. So it's a fundamental difference with athletes. You are absolutely correct. You can periodize training because you can predict when the competition will come. So, so we, we take elements from sports science, but with the recognition that they are completely different. And there's a, there's a quote from a, a colleague of mine, a guy called Gaz Bamford. He talks about tractors and Ferraris. And he said that athletes are like the Ferraris. You know, they, they require the, you know, the, the, the best fuel, they, you know, polish them up. They look great, but they break very easily. They're at the, you know, they're, they're at the higher echelons of, of that, that performance, but they're, they're quite fragile. Because actually in the military, tractors are probably what we actually require. So that it's the kind of person who, again, can operate to a high level. They can perform to a very high level, but they don't need cleaning all the time. They don't need, they don't, well, with a parachute regiment officer in the room, you know, he knows that. They don't need the, the fancy fuel. The, the tractor analogy, I think, fits really well, but we still need a really good engine. We need the engineering to, to help create that tractor. We need to be able to make sure the tractor can do the job that it needs to do but it's a completely different animal. But ultimately, they both have an engine in there. So, you know, the knowledge that we get from sports science, from athletes, can apply, but it needs tweaking. And a lot of the research that we do within DSTL maybe can take some of those concepts from sports science, but it's not just blindly applying what we would do with, say, the England rugby team. It just is not the same. It just doesn't work. So we have to make sure that the, the human performance um, optimization strategies that we are researching and applying and endorsing need to be fit for purpose. And that's where DSTL's experts come in and, and do that research and make sure it is fit for purpose. It's, it's a really good analogy, although I would say that some tractors can be really good looking as well as Ferraris. Also, you attract a fantasy. <laughs> I'm yeah, a Lamborghini, Lamborghini, a Lamborghini tractor. tractor. A really good looking Massey Ferguson. It's broad. Right? There's a lot of different tractors that you need to really kind of drive this agricultural references to the ground. <laughs> yeah. But there's a lot of different. You need a tractor that can go on a boat, a tractor that can fly a, an aeroplane, which has yep. a huge, a, you know, different set of stresses on it. Yep. How do you get after? One size does not fit all. So we have to, I think we, 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 can, we can approach it in a few different ways. I think fundamentally there's a foundation of human performance that, I would argue applies to 99% people and that would be, we could think of it almost as pillars M moving well, just good. You know, are you physically active? Are you eating and fueling? Well, are you getting the right food and, and hydration? Are you resting and recovering well, which encompasses sleep and are you connecting well? And that's teamwork, that's leadership. And I think those foundations apply to almost everybody and everything and then we can build we can enhance on top of that so then we might have task specific stresses or task specific enhancement or optimization strategies that could be highly relevant one domain one platform or one role but completely inappropriate for another so that's where we can focus on getting the basics really really tight and, and get those working really well that enables us to then build on them with the specific enhancement or an optimization strategies for different people. It's like, it's really interesting when, when you think about that because you can apply it to, to 90%, but it's very different from a fighter pilot who actually, you want them to be your optimum, their optimum moment throughout the flight envelope and probably the planning envelope, right? Yep. That, that's, that's what we think about when we do it. And you think about, you know, you know, a, a deployment of troops in Mali, for example, when they're on patrol, you need them to be like on it, you know, for the whole period of that patrol. And and so you're talking about 15 days, not just simple hours. And then you start to pull in what you're talking about in terms of rest and recuperation and, and sleep and recovery and, you know, all that stuff, which gives you that thing. And it becomes like a, it becomes like a, an approach to life almost is what it feels like you're saying. Mm. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think there's, 
there's a lot of things in people's lifestyles that can thwart human performance. You know, you can train the, the, the old analogy is you can't out train a bad diet. I mean, that, that could be true. You could be doing lots of great things, um, in your day, in, you know, in your job, and then you could thwart that by, you know, what you do at home. So I think it is a bit of a lifestyle approach in terms of optimizing performance. It has to be more than just the eight, nine hours that you spend in work. It has to be something a bit more than that for sure. So in, in the sort of, in the human optimization team at DSTL, what does that kind of expertise look like? I mean, you know, you talked about those three pillars, you get, but actually there's a huge amount, you know, there's, there's chemicals, there's brain waves, there's synapses, there's neural networks, you yeah. know, and that's sort of side of the sort of physiotherapy and the nutrition. I mean, have you got a thousand people here? We've not, we've not got a thousand people. No, we have a diver, a really diverse team. So our experts in the human performance team. Um, they work in other areas as well. It's, they don't, they're not just purely human performance, but we do have neuroscience, uh, neuroscientists, cognitive psychologists, sports psychs like me. We have training experts, education experts, uh, physiologists, nutritionists, biomechanists. So we, we, human performance is, is an interdisciplinary science. So we come together, we work together to take the, the best from each of those sub-disciplines and try and try and understand really complex problems that if you just throw a psychologist at the problem, they'll only see it from one side. So we try and get this interdisciplinary approach to human performance to try and to try and understand and solve these really complex problems in, in the best ways that we can. Can you give us an example of a complex problem you're working with? Yeah, lots. So how do you optimize sleep? That that's that's probably that's a very complex problem. So we can think about sleep and fatigue and we think about sleepiness and fatigue and they're actually very different things. Fatigue, can, you can become fatigued in the absence of sleep. You can become fatigued even if you've had really good sleep. So one of the things that we're trying to understand is how do you help people to perform in, in complex, demanding environments when they might not have had the, the classic eight hours sleep in a nice comfy bed? And we can go online and you can type in things like sleep hygiene and you can find these sleep experts online and they'll tell you, you know, have a nice dark bedroom, a nice comfy pillow, a nice comfy bed. Hang on, these are, these are written down in RAF manuals. They're, yeah. like, they're like QRs, right? It's yeah. like, I don't think the same applies elsewhere. But I'm, yeah, okay. just, I'm relaying a, a company command post and all with all of those things. Yeah. So those are things you can get online. Those are what the... The sleep experts will tell you. So my challenge then, I will come into the infantry and say, right, that that's what you must do in order to, to be healthy and perform well. It just doesn't work. You, so we, we need to understand that the existing recommendations that are maybe coming from outside of the defense security world, from the health, health world, that making that case that this is what you need to be healthy can actually diminish someone's sleep because now they're going to worry that they're, they're not getting enough sleep because of the nature of their job and they might not be they might have a long-term health impact so what we try and the, the complex problem is how do you optimize someone's performance when we know that restricted sleep does really negatively affect cognitive performance in particular you, you know you sustained attention decision making communication leadership all of these we call them soft skills if you will or these cognitive functions they are eroded by a lack of sleep. Like that, that's just not up for debate. There's so much research on that that we know this. This, this research has been happening in the UK defence for years. We've got studies going back 40, 50 years ago where we, we know this, is, this happens. But we also know that there's an operational imperative that people need to work nights. People are, you know, military personnel, defence security people, our people are shift workers. Sometimes our people need to work in darkness and um, the nature of their job means that they don't see much sunlight so how do we take that constraint and how do we then optimize performance but not actually be able to give them the best sleep that they can get so the ideal is we say right get your eight hours get a nice comfy hotel room and, and get really good sleep but that's not going to happen so what can we do that that makes the situation as good as it can be with the constraints that are presented. I can't wait for that report to come out. I don't, you know, <laughs> it, it, genuinely, it's like, it, it's a really complex problem, but I take it as well because, you know, just walking down this amazing establishment, 
today and 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 seeing all the various people around here from different teams doing a whole diverse set of work are you guys the disruptors as well because you've got these wonderful technical people who are all into the you know deep d- you know deep you know i'm not going to say nerdy but you know deep science right are you the guys that come in and go no no, no that won't work you know you got to think about it are you because it is like the whole of dstl is a bit of an interdisciplinary type, func- type function right so whilst you're an inter- interdisciplinary team yourselves I take it you go out and you go and sit with the cyber team and the AI team and the, and the you know, weapons teams, whatever it is, and, and also go, yeah, can't do that. So the human social sciences components within DSTL work across the whole lab. So our experts who are human and social science experts collaborate with lots of other scientists. So we try and bring that human side into many other, other areas. And within human performance in particular, we, I wouldn't say... We're not the disruptors per se. We try and bring in technology from outside of defense security. And is that applicable to defense? Can it, can it help solve our, our immediate problems? And sometimes it, it can. And sometimes we do have to say that, that there's no evidence for that, despite the marketing claims. The obvious one is, is the wearable technology. So we do a lot of wearable technology work within, within defense. I've got my, my watch on. I won't tell you what brand it is, but I've got my wearable on at the moment. These wearables give us lots of data about the human, about human performance. There's a, there's a desire to use that data. There are other, other solutions. There are rings. There are lots of different brands of watches. There are things you, you put on your smartphone, which we call nearables instead of wearables. And in terms of how we are potentially the disruptor there is we need to say, well, the marketing of this, of these devices is very, very good and very strong. And there's sometimes a pull from from defense and security to say, can we use this technology? We want to use these wearables. And we then say, well, let's test this. Let's make sure that it's really robust, that it's doing what you think it's doing, that we can make sure that the data that you get off it is then useful and usable and isn't going to be leaked away to somebody else and maybe you know, be used by somebody else who you don't want to use that data. So that's how we maybe integrate and disrupt uh, in that respect to try and try and get the best out of those types of technologies i think that's really important as well because because often i don't know you've sat there and gone i really would love this you know on the front line you're out somewhere deployed and you go oh i'd really love this this would be really good whether it's a wearable or, or whatever else and then someone comes back and goes no we're not funding that and you go why the hell are you not funding that i mean it seems like such a simple fix and actually somebody who's taken a good proper look at this going yeah it actually has no value whatsoever it's just a distraction that's quite a healthy thing to think about at the back of your mind. I mean, at the time, you don't understand it, right? You know, and it's slightly different for, you know, I want a new body armor plate or something. But it is, it is really important to have that kind of touch point, to know that someone's got your back. I mean, genuinely important. Okay, but moving on from that, what else are the team working on? I mean, you know, and it's not just here, I guess, but do you look at what other people might be looking at? So, you know, if we wouldn't touch, you know, stimulants of some kind, chemical stimulants, right? That, you know, there's every chance that others, whether North Korea or, you know, the RGC, I don't know, who, whoever they would be, will be talking about using stimulants. Do you look at that and say, hey, this is what other people might be using, you know, and, and these are the adverse effects or, you know, this is why we wouldn't want to go down this route? Or yeah. you, is that part of your work as well? Yeah. So I'd say, first of all, here at DSTL, we are collaborative. So we will work with the other frontline command labs. So there's other research establishments within the UK. And we, we work with them daily. We also collaborate with academic partners in universities and industry. So we, we, we reach out and, we, and we, we work with people to get that knowledge and bring that back into defense and security. So that's how we, we work in that respect. We also, our, our research projects can be thought of in terms of time frames. So we could think of, you know, generation now, generation next or generation after next. So we can think, well, generation after next is, say, 30 years time, say 2050-ish. We need to be able to to stock the shelves, if you will, of, of relevant research now so that when we need it in 2050, we've got all that, that preparatory research. And sometimes what we need to be able to do is say, there might be things that we're not that we don't do in the UK because of our ethical and legal frameworks, you know, and quite rightly. But that doesn't mean that's that there are other people that don't necessarily adhere to the same ethical and legal frameworks as we do. So we have to understand where are the opportunities, where are the threats, and what do we need to do to make sure that 
as a as an organization and as a as a country that we are on the front foot and able to to utilize that science and technology as we need to now i i was just wondering about this because you know i we talked a lot about the soft skills about decision making and I, but part of those things that you talked about was was the physical aspects to it the ability for example to carry weight or to or to work at altitude and i'm guessing that's where technology which is sort of what dstl has become synonymous with is right cutting edge technology is that where there's a there's a there's a cut across there are you talking about you know exoskeletons or or load bearing dogs or you know <laughs> whatever it is it, it, is that part of your realm as well it is yep so we do we, we've, we've done some work with exoskeletons it's not iron man most people jump straight to 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 iron man exoskeletons we're not quite there they they resemble more like uh, like the knee brace that your old PE teacher used to wear, um, maybe a bit more advanced than that. But we do look at exoskeletons already. That's is some of the work that we're doing and the work that we plan on doing in the future. And also looking at internationally, so we collaborate with some of our international partners as well to get to bring that innovation from say the NATO alliance and how we can contribute to that and how NATO can contribute to, to what we're doing in the UK. So there is that. That uh, that sort of work happening at the moment. So when you when you work with all these other with all these other people, is is there something that you go, yeah, we're always good at this bit. Is there something about what DSTL brings to the party that goes, yeah, we always we always nail this bit, or or conversely, is there something you go, US Marine Corps, they do X really well, and actually, so we're not going to do that because actually we know we can always draw on it. Is there, is there a degree of this, not specialization, but you know almost moving into a role where you each work on hardest where you excel or is it you do everything and then you just bring bits of it to the party i think it's probably the latter i think we just we do a lot so we we collaborate across many many different areas so in nato for example there's there's research panels and there's several i think there's 11 of them in all different areas of defense technology and and, and science and we work across all of them and so the the one that I work in the most is is called the Human Factors and Medicine Panel, and it's pretty much every area of medicine that you can think of, and every area of human science that you can think of. And, and the UK is represented broadly across a lot of those panels, and many people from the UK work here. They they are from DSTL, so it's it's our experts in DSTL that contribute to those. The, what we call research task groups or those activities within NATO. And you could tell that, and you won't talk about this because you probably find it boring, but it, but there's a great panel out in the sort of atrium, right, where the, where the cheap coffee is, that there's this lovely long timeline yep. of DSTL and all the things it's contributed to. And some of those are really, really important, really niche areas, particularly in biological, chemical weapons, detection. And then the deployment of people out here to go and work on things like the Ebola crisis that, that end up with, you know, and these were really badly funded, right? But they, you know, uh, across all of defense, it wasn't a popular thing in the 90s to be working on, you know, biological and chemical agents and pathogens and, and investing in level four labs or whatever they were. But then you end up with this, this point at which you get COVID, where people then roll out from here to do quite exceptional stuff that, that really is... It's quite amazing. Now, does that does the medicine sit within your team as well, or is that another group? It doesn't sit within my team, no. So I don't work with in the the medical side of things. We do have other programs which are specifically focused on medicine, but that's not that's not really what where I work. So we, what, the way I I can think of human performance is, well, fundamentally, you can't perform if you're broken. So if you are not healthy, if you if you if you've got some kind of medical issues chances of you actually performing and, and doing your job well is, is very limited. So they are interconnected. But I kind of think of wh where I work is that those individuals who maybe are not ill, they've got no medical issues, they're not medically downgraded, they are, let's say they're healthy. Does being healthy mean that they are optimal? Are they performing to their best? So the research we, we try and do is take that individual from their healthy to their best self like how do you get them how do you minimize that gap between where they are now and where they need to be in order to do the job that the country requires them to do what's the balance in and so training you you said earlier what was it, you can't out train a bad diet yeah so let's I wish we with, could well, no. <laughs> yeah i mean yeah. everyone wishes that yeah. 
but let's let's focus on this. how here yeah, the army in particular needs capable young men and women to do their jobs is their diet is the diet that we're offering them hitting that your opinion <laughs> we don't provide the food so that we have to be able to provide the research that says that these are the types of things that will optimize your performance now how much they cost and how to then procure them is something that's not that we don't do in the human performance research group so we can we can provide that research base that can inform that policy and and inform that decision making in the future so we can we, we've got lots of that research that says you know certain ergogenic aids um, on, what's know, that mean? Uh, like your supplements okay. so you know should you be taking a protein shake should you be ingesting creatine we've got all that research that says well in these situations it probably will improve your performance in these situations it probably won't and um, should we be giving people caffeine for example to keep you awake well it will work in certain situations but it won't work in others and these are the reasons why so we we're able to do that research that that gives you that that context of when and where some of these things could be used but then you don't want to start a new logistic chain for yourself yeah you? it's not it's not then we, we're not there then to, uh, you're trying to get that full titanium yeah. that's what we really need <laughs> yeah. yeah but i think it's really interesting you know on on a ship and control that you can you can advise what the, the best thing to be serving the the ship's company is but you're and on then, a budget right so you're on two pounds 70 a day or whatever it is to you know for a person for three meals yeah. and everything else that goes with it it's like that and and this is what i find really is is re must be really difficult right and it's it, dstl does this amazing research that that gives you the optimization answer but but what you have to make up that answer probably just doesn't add up so somewhere else has got to make that decision over how far can i get towards that until my budget increases magically to i don't know three percent of gdp and then and then maybe you can pull that you know maybe we can feed people properly or or with the right stuff or you know t i don't know, take carbs out i don't know what it is but at some stage, there is a stopper. And all you can do, I'm guessing, with this site is the best research you can do. And and then you can't wash your hands of it. I don't know. Maybe here's the question. Is it frustrating when you do this amazing amount of research, you're taking it out, and then and then for reasons beyond your control, right, you see that, yeah, they're getting part way, but just a little bit more would make a big difference? I mean, that must have won it. I think there's, it's the expect, got to make sure your expectation is in the right place. So we know that if I... If I put out some work and do a research study, it's not going to change things overnight. And and we know that it, it's we work in an ecosystem. We work in a defense ecosystem. We work with our partners across MOD. And we don't do things on we cannot do things on our own. So we can put put that research out, but it then has to be then inform that 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 ecosystem. And if if we expect, if I was to expect to to make a huge change in policy overnight then that then yes i would be frustrated if it doesn't happen but that's not the expectation and i think going back to to what i was saying before you know dstl we are collaborative so when we're coming up with our research questions when we're developing the future what is it that we need to study we're not just academics sat in an ivory tower we're not just saying well i've read this journal article and that's the next research question we are collaborating with our partners in these in that defense ecosystem with the frontline commands with procurement with logistics and say right we've got this research idea but then they turn around and say yeah but it's never going to happen because of these reasons then we say right let's go back to the drawing board let's work together and let's try and come up with a, a, a research question that actually will make a difference that fits in with the constraints that another organization that in defense have so that collaboration is key and those research questions, and you talked about these three sort of ages of man that you're sort of you know, <laughs> ages of human that you're looking across for the future, right? The sort of the, this gen, next gen, and the one after. Where does the focus sit? I mean, it can't, I mean, this is a resource question, right? You, you've got to look at one of the three because you can't throw this whole multiple industry and go cover the world, right? It's, there's got to be a final. Where does the focus sit? Is it because the science is like 30 years out? Is it because actually you need immediate gains? Where does the, Where's the balance here? And who steers that? Yeah, so human performance is what we call a driving research project. So we are looking to the next generation is mostly the research we do. We do have some more responsive generation now. We do some, do some of that research, but most of our research is a bit more driving. It's a bit more future oriented. So that decision 
comes through the MOD main building from the Chief Scientific Advisor's office. And we, we work again with, with our partners in defense to, to develop that landscape of research. So we, like I say, we don't just sit here and say, this is what we're going to do. We spend quite a lot of time. And that's one of my main roles is actually partnering with our people in defense and trying to understand, well, what are your requirements now? What are your requirements in the next 10 years based on what you think the future is going to be? And we try and put together a roadmap of what kind of research should we be doing over the next few years, recognizing that research does take time. So if we if we have a something that needs answering yesterday, then you know we needed to start that research four years ago. So we need to we recognize it does take time to get these this research these research projects up and running. So that that's where working with our partners, working with people, getting the the bottom up research requirements as well as the top down. So what I mean by that is what is the the landscape of the scientific literature, what's happening across the world in different labs, but then what are the requirements from our people and can we find a middle ground somewhere um, so that hopefully we we are producing work that people can actually use. Can we talk in a bit of depth about sleep? Please. But obviously I'm keen at the minute having to figure out how to optimise my sleep, but I, I don't think I'm wrong in saying that optimizing sleep is something that could give all services an operational advantage. If you can get better sleep, you can make better decisions. How clearly for your pilot in the RAF, he's going to get his or she's going to get their eight hours sleep in their five-star hotel. <laughs> I joke, but <laughs> maybe I joke, I don't know. Or on the issue, yeah, yeah. Your ship's company, they've got their, their hot bedding, so they get into a I mean, bed. It's one of these things that we have organizations or some organizations that pride themselves on functioning through a lack of sleep. Yeah. It's like, you know, pe- people... It's a badge of honor. You know, it's, yeah, it's like it's a a mark of performance, right? As I did this only on two hours sleep, done that for, you know, six days. And, you know, and we do the same with our soldiers and we say, hey, right, you're on stag again. And, uh, you know, and then we throw them into something else and it's a way of, you know, testing performance. And, and we see that as sort of a, you know, performance thing that you can work on no sleep. But it seems to me from what you're saying, the reverse is true, right? That we should be going a different way and we don't acknowledge the importance of it. I think n- number one, the, I, I, I'll put my neck out and say there is nothing that we do whilst awake that is improved by a lack of sleep. I think every single aspect of human performance, be that physical or cognitive or social, is degraded when you are sleep restricted or sleep deprived and we don't get enough sleep. I can't think of anything that improves with with a lack of sleep. So with that in mind, we've got to think, well, sleep is pretty important and and evolution shows us that it is because it's still with us. And if you think from an evolutionary perspective, sleep makes absolutely no sense. When you're asleep, you are at risk of predation you don't reproduce, you can't pass your genes on. And if we think more contemporary, you can't do your emails, you can't work when you're asleep. There's lots of things you, that, that you can't do. You don't feed, you don't drink. So the things that we need to sustain life, you can't do when you're asleep. So it makes no sense from an evolutionary perspective, yet it's still here. And if we go across the animal kingdom, there is not an animal on the planet that doesn't have some period of rest that we would call sleep. We can look at microscopic nematode worms that have got 150 neurons they sleep now fruit flies sleep dogs elephants dolphins everything sleeps so it's clearly important there's there's no doubt that evolution has has maintained sleep for a good reason so why do we sleep well the answer is we don't really know there's lots of reasons there's lots of things that sleep does there's no universal one reason but we know that that if we say, well, what happens when you don't sleep? Well, like we said before, your cognitive functions, your your attention, your ability to make decisions, communication, your leadership, your just the, the this vast array of cognitive skills are degraded. Physically, things feel much harder. So your the muscles can contract just as well when you're sleep deprived as when you're fresh. But if you go for a ten mile run, fresh. And then compare that to a 10 mile run sleep deprived, the sleep deprived one just feels way worse. It feels harder. So what happens when something's hard? You slow your pace, you shorten your stride, and then you're now off the back. 
So it's not that we're physically unable to run, we just don't exercise as well. So it's clearly something really important. So what we need to re really try and drive home is that while there is a culture of sleeplessness and this badge of honor of, I can operate just as well as you and I only sleep three hours, we need to start flipping that narrative and saying, well, imagine how good you would be performing. Yes, you're performing it well enough, but imagine how well we could be performing as a group, as a team, or as, even as, as an individual, if you were optimizing your sleep, because it is a pillar of performance. If you don't eat, you die within, what do you reckon, a month, two months? If you don't, if you don't take in water, what do you reckon, a week, probably you're going to die within a week. If you don't breathe, a couple of minutes. And if you don't sleep, you, you die. A couple, the, the world record for sleep deprivation is, I think it's around about 11 days, but very questionable. The Guinness Book of World Records has banned sleep deprivation as a, as a, as a, as a world record. The reason being they consider it too dangerous. This is the organization that allowed someone to jump out of space in, in a spacesuit, but staying awake is too dangerous. So we need to value that sleep is a fundamental pillar of everything that we do when we're awake. Okay, and it, so if we, if we ex you know, and I do accept that, you make a compelling argument, I've got it, the, the evidence is there, right? I good, it. sold. So, so sold. <laughs> yeah. so, so is that just a question that, that you know, the military needs to acknowledge that, which is like an information campaign. That's not like a DSDL thing. Or other research questions that actually that need looking at that, that no one else is going to look at. I mean, that's, that's what DSTL do, right? Yeah. So what is the areas in, in for example, in sleep, in, in restive therapy, whatever it is, that, yeah. that, that need to be looked at? So this is, where, this is where DSTL comes in. This is where our experts you know, really provide that advantage in that if you get your eight hours, that's great. But the nature of the job, the nature of the tasks that we're asking our people to do means that they, they, they cannot do that. So what we need to try and find out is, are there ways of optimizing this, the opportunity for sleep that you have? So if you can't get a consolidated eight hours on a nice comfy bed, well, what happens if we break that up into what we call polyphasic sleep? What if we nap? What if we, we get naps in there? What if we, if you're, maybe you've been awake for 24 hours and we know that your performance is down because you've been awake for 24 hours, what do we do? Like if we know that, that there is no opportunity to sleep because there's a situation that demands that everyone's now awake, like, a, you know, there's a contact. We can't just say you've been up for 24 hours, so it's time for you to go to sleep, but they are degraded. So what do we do? Do we just rely on adrenaline? Or is that when we say, right, this is when we should be taking caffeine and perhaps instead of drinking it through coffee, we've got a, a caffeine gum or a tablet because it's ingested quicker. So we can do that research to say, how do we, how do we optimize the situation when the situation is not optimal? And that's where, that's where the research needs to go. And it's things like, if you think sleep's regulated, very broadly speaking, by two systems, we've got what we call our sleep drive, which builds up throughout the day. It's a homeostatic system like, like thirst. So if you don't drink, you get thirstier and thirstier. It, the thirst builds and builds and builds. Then when you do drink, it washes away. Sleep's the same. You stay awake, your sleep drive builds and builds and builds and builds until you then fall asleep and it washes away. And that happens every day. So usually after about 16 hours, you will feel really sleepy because your sleep drive is really high. There's certain things building up in your brain. So we know that. So what do we need to do? Well, if we know that's a neurochemical system, can we block it? Can we use things to stop that buildup? Or can we use things to maybe almost trick our brain into like fooling it into thinking that that system's not there or those, 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 those chemicals are in our brain. The second system is our circadian rhythm. That's going up and down throughout the day. And our circadian rhythm is a 24 hour biological rhythm that regulates your sleep. So your circadian rhythm is, is building and round about, you know, as the sun goes down, when it gets dark, your circadian rhythm drops. That usually happens at the peak where your sleep pressure is built. So your circadian rhythm is down, your sleep pressure is up. Those two combine and you fall asleep. So the other thing we can think is, well, how do we work with our circadian rhythm? How do we reset our rhythms? Because 
you think of your circadian rhythm a bit like an old grandfather clock that's slightly broken. It runs a little bit fast. So most people don't run to 24 hours. These rhythms that are just happening constantly in our body run to about 24 hours, 15 minutes. So every day you've got that old grandfather clock. You need to put a key in it and set it to the correct time every day. Because if you don't, it's going to get faster and faster and faster. That's our circadian rhythm. We set our rhythm every day and we do that through light, through light exposure. That natural light, a certain intensity needs to get into our eyes. There's a system then in your brain. It sets that clock. What if you're in an environment where there's no light? Like what if you're underwater, for example, where there's no light? Or it's, it's natural that you're, you're, not, you're not getting natural light, you're getting man-made light, which is not high enough intensity. What if you're working nights? So that's where we can say, well, what is, where, how can we use the research? How can we gain an operational advantage by using these, these technologies to, 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 to re-entrain our rhythms when we don't have light? What other things can entrain our rhythms? Um, and again, going back to the, the, the sleep pressure, what can we do to stop or block that, that pressure building up? So we can maybe shift sleep one way or the other. Uh, I'm I'm flabbergasted. That was brilliant. Honestly, <laughs> I, I just think that there are amazing research questions that that you come across that won't be struck by others. Actually, seem to be sort of fundamentally important. Not that you need eight hours and and you know a five inch mattress, but actually that you know mapping the degradation of performance and thinking about how you can how you can change some of the things that we regard as fixed in our lives to maximize that performance. And, but no one else is going to undertake that, right? I mean, it's, it's not something that, that a university in you know, Exeter or Southampton is, is going to say, you know, hey, here's a good idea. Let's get This is something that has got to be boutique. It's bespoke. It's not something that you would find a, you know, an academic grant for, is it? This, this, this is very different. Yeah, it, it... There are there are some academic institutions that do this type of research, and that we, we partner with them. We get we get those experts, and we collaborate with them, and we 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 build those innovations through those partnerships. So there are some, but there. Are, if we go back to the sport analogy, if you think Premier League football, they won't be interested in how do you move someone from the UK, push them forward nine time zones into a you no know, into another country where the minute they land they they have to do a very difficult job that might be really hot and it might be up a mountain you now why would manchester united be interested in that that's just not relevant to them but that is a question that that is relevant to us because that is the nature of, of, of a lot of people's jobs so it's understanding what we call transmeridian travel or, or jet lag how do we optimize people can we prepare people in this country so that they start to acclimatize here. So when they get to wherever they're going, they don't get jet lag. We can we can fool our we can almost trick our bodies into into adjusting to the time zones while you're in this country. And we we've done that research and we can we can we can we understand how to do that. And and we can we can help people so that they, they don't get jet lag. And equally when they come back, it's the same. We can acclimatize wherever they are so that when they come back, they're fine. If they have to then deploy around the world at short notice what what can we do to to optimize people's performance when we're faced with those challenges and that's where that's where sport doesn't have that challenge the unpredictability is just not not something that sports people have to deal with it feels like your research is you pushes this down a more natural a sort of body shop way of doing it right and and this is less about the sort of you know what chemicals do we need to add to make people work better it, now is that right or is that just my impression of it because you're a we, really eloquent speaker you know, <laughs> is it actually this is about pushing hundreds of drugs into people or you know which might be the answer in, in some circles but is there an actual bias here towards more natural remedies i think there's a bias towards the most the most positive effects that like the, there's a bias towards getting the most efficient the most effective methods so if we look at how do you improve let, let's talk about one sort of cognitive domain if we talk about inhibition or like go no go should i move should i not move should i shoot should i not shoot that inhibition your ability to to recognize when you need to go one direction and stop yourself when you recognize it's not the right thing so how do we improve that so that's the that's the first thing we start with 
we need that as a, that as a core cognitive function that is going to be required by many many people you know agnostic of whatever role they're in that's a, that's an essential skill how do we get the most out of them so let, let's let's we could draw a mind map and say right we could zap their brain with uh, a transcranial stimulation which we we do we've done some of that research we could give them a um, off the shelf herbal remedy we could give them a, a certain pharmacological solution we can go through that and we say right well if you give them treatment a how much is their 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 how much improvement do you get right let's compare that with treatment b let's compare that with treatment c we can see well what's the most effective and what we found with a lot of the cognitive skills is fundamentally if someone's sleep deprived and you just give them a good night's sleep the size of the effect is enormous compared to all of these add-ons so i think what we need to fundamentally do it's not necessarily a holistic you know natural way of doing things it's just fundamentally saying well how do we get the best out of people based on what we have available to us right now? We're not in the world of hacking. We're not going to say, let's hack performance by by giving them this particular pill or giving them this technology. We're not interested in hacking. We want to make sure that we optimize performance first and foremost, get the most out of people. And actually, the way that we do that is, like I said, those four principles, do we get people resting, sleeping well, do we get them moving effectively, efficiently? So good physical activity, and um, good nutrition, good hydration, and good social connection. Just if we can, if we get those things, those add-on technologies, then that you might see those large effects because you know they're performing really well. Can you then we we call that enhancement? Can we enhance on top of that? And again, that is some of the research that we're doing here. That enhancement piece, hacking thing. I mean, really strikes a chord because it, it just strikes me that that's not something that you can sustainably do you can't make your way to success particularly not in armed conflict because it's going to last longer than that stimulant that you might take initially you can probably survive on coffee for quite a long time but that's quite a narrow stimulant 48 hours yeah sure. yeah you've got two days no sleep two, two Co days coffee on... will sort you out for 48 hours and then you're you're, you're screwed two days on kenko right? yeah. or whatever it is in the ration packs now. yeah so you just you, there are no short no, it's absolutely true. The 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 truth is that I mean, let, let's let I made that case. Sleep has evolved for a really good reason. It it it's it's something that we we naturally do, and as a result, let's think about the side effect profile of sleep. Like what happened? What's the negative of sleeping? If we if we get someone who's currently sleeping four hours, and we give them five hours, now I'm not saying you know, change their world. Just give them an extra hour. What's the side effect of that? What's the negative of giving someone a bit more sleep? Or if they're getting four hours, if we give them a couple of like twenty-minute naps, what's the downside? So we think, well, well, while they're asleep, they're not, they can't do their job. That's potentially the only downside. That the the there might be a safety issue as long as you've got you know people are covering for them. But there's not there's nothing in terms of their long-term health that I mean. I'm happy for someone to correct me if I'm wrong here, but I can't think of anything health-wise in terms of, you know, you're suddenly going to increase your risk of a long-term health complaint because you get slightly more sleep when you're sleep-deprived. What we need to understand with some of these, these new technologies, and this is a really important aspect of the research that we do, is not only, you know, if it has a positive effect, is there a side effect? Do We, we need to understand some of these side effect profiles. We need to understand, you know, if you are, like for, for example, caffeine. Caffeine is one of those psychostimulants that blocks that sleep drive that I talked about. It's a, what we call an, an, an adenosine receptor antagonist. It blocks a chemical called adenosine in our brain. It works. It definitely works. You know, we don't. If you if you bang down some caffeine, you get that alertness boost, and you can stay pretty alert for quite a long time. You take enough caffeine, but in all the coffee cups, in this. yeah. But it, it 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 it's metabolized. You don't, it doesn't stay forever. So you then have caffeine crashes. People get addicted to caffeine. Caffeine does more than just keep you awake. It has an effect on your nervous system. You, know, you, you might suddenly get some people get really jittery, increased heart rates, get a bit sweaty in the palms. There's a there's side effects. So we need to understand like what are what are the advantages, what are the potential advantages of some of these technologies and some of these optimization strategies and offset that with is there any risk 
And then once we have both, then I can hand that over and say, right, commanders, you make you make the best decision. Now you've, you're informed. You've got the best evidence that we can give you. You've got the information. Here's the benefit. Here's the risk. Now you can make that decision because you've got the information in front of you and that you need. This seems like a really important point that, you know, someone needs to look at the, the side effects, but specifically the military side effects, which is not just an ND, but it's a decision about collateral damage. It's a decision about go, no-go lines. It's a decision about, you know, move, not move. Is the ISR right? Can I analyze the, you know, the, the, the fullness of the picture correctly and, and produce a J2 brief at the end of it that is actually going to be fundamental decision? Is there a... Can they do that with less space? Can we look at the side effects of these military side effects, but can we do it in a safe space rather than sort of, you know, lots of people are talking about, we should do this live experimentation. I want people to get in the field. I want them to experiment and do this stuff, you know, go wild with it. And actually you just think maybe we need a safe space to do this stuff rather than doing it around, you know, large tanks and, and vehicles and helicopters and, and jets and things and, and dropping even practice bombs. You know, the, this is a, we need to do this in a safe space under yep. control in a controlled area yep. and then figure out, you know, what works, what doesn't, but as well as the fact that this might degrade an adversary, right? So I don't know, adversary ration packs, I don't know, for the Russian military might contain a, a huge amount of caffeine and, and there may be a way of ex us exploiting that. But unless we know the side effects, we will never be able to do that properly. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I think if we, we look at the, the fundamental difference between DSTL as an, as a, a research establishment and we take that difference and we look at say a university in terms of that there's expertise in both institutions if we talk about say light exposure that we that previously mentioned the university could do all those studies do whatever they like but it's highly unlikely that they will have access to the unique environments and maybe some of the the constraints that exist within defense so what where where dstl sits is that because we can collaborate, because we work closely with multiple partners across MOD and internationally, that we can create those safe spaces. And we are we are regulated and governed by scientific advisory committees and, and the MOD research ethics committee. So we make sure that we are we are doing, you know, tightly controlled ethical research. We don't just it's not a free for all, far from it. But we we are able to do that. We're able to 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 do that, the research, the kind of research that you that you talk about, that maybe uh, other institutions can't because they they don't have access to the people, they don't have access to the training areas, and there may be a security issue that they they can't have access to certain tactics or strategies. Whereas we're able to do that through the collaborative partnerships that we that we draw upon. That that make, that makes us unique. So if you really want to see your research get put to use, this is a great place to be. Yeah, absolutely. I think that might be a good place to draw this to a play. Martin, thanks very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of A Soldier, a Sailor and a Scientist. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe so you can catch the next one when it comes out. Thanks again. Hope to see you again soon.